definition of a trauma-informed approach is a person-centered approach. So that we're really thinking about what are this person's needs? What are this person's values? What are their perspectives? What are the meditator's perspectives and values and goals? And really being aware of power dynamics and issues around power and authority. Welcome to the Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness Podcast. I'm David Trelevin. This is a podcast that explores the intersection of mindfulness, meditation, and traumatic stress. In this episode, I'm speaking with Willoughby Britton and Jared Lindahl. Willoughby and Jared are co-authors of the Variety of Contemplative Experiences Study, which is a landmark investigation into the nature of meditation-related difficulties. They're two of the world's experts in studying the difficulties that people can encounter in meditation, as well as the factors that contribute to these experiences. In our conversation, we covered a number of topics, including how difficult experiences in meditation can be appraised and understood, the causes and circumstances that lead to people having challenging experiences in meditation, including how this relates to trauma, the relationship between dysregulated arousal, traumatic stress, and the symptoms that Willoughby and Jared uncovered in their research, the relationship between a trauma-informed and person-centered approach in meditation, why understanding both the benefits and drawbacks of meditation is so important for meditation teachers, and where people can find specific resources for meditators in distress. I've been hoping to get Willoughby and Jared in the podcast for quite a while, given their expertise and what they can offer around trauma-sensitive mindfulness, and I was really happy that the conversation happened. So without further ado, here is Willoughby Britton and Jared Lindahl. Well, I'm here with Willoughby Britton and Jared Lindahl. Thank you both for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks, David. So we've been, you know, I've known you both, I realized, for almost 10 years now. Willoughby, it's since 2012 that you reached out to me. And then, Jared, I think I met you at a coffee shop in San Francisco when the two of you were here for a conference maybe nine years ago. So I feel like there's been many different iterations and threads leading to this conversation, and I'm really happy you're both here. And for people that don't know your work and the research that you've been doing, I'm wondering if you could just spend a couple minutes each just kind of situating yourself about um, the work that you've done, the research that you've been involved in, just so people have a, a, a sense of what you're up to. Um, Will, do you mind starting? Sure. So I am a, an assistant professor of psychiatry and human behavior at Brown Medical School. I've been here 15 years. And the first 10 years of my research um, focused on, you know, meditation-related interventions or treatments like uh, mm -hmm. mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, mindfulness-based stress reduction, um, really just looking at, you know, how mindfulness meditation can be used in health. And I looked at the, the neuroscientific mechanisms of how meditation could be used uh, specifically in, in mood disorders and depression. Mm -hmm. um, so that was kind of my primary research for a long time. Um, and there were a couple of events that made me also ask about what the boundary conditions were, whether there were there were conditions under which, you know, mindfulness was not maximally optimal or, or a good choice of treatment. Right. And uh, I also started looking at practice specific effects um, and moderators of treatment outcomes. So things that, um, you know, impact whether the pr a specific practice is good for a specific person or condition. So yeah. all of those things started, um, leading in kind of the same direction towards asking about um, adverse effects and under what conditions those occur. And so in right. uh, 2000, really as early as 2007, we started asking meditation teachers about what types of difficulties they had observed in their students and how they appraised them and, and, and what to do about them. Um, and that became eventually the varieties of contemplative experience study, which took us about a decade to publish, which we published in 2017. Which has how many downloads? I feel like it just crossed a threshold recently. Um, it just crossed a hundred thousand downloads. I think we're at 110, something like that now. Yeah. Wow. And it'll be free. I mean, it's uh, from a journal where it's open access, if I'm right. So I'll be sure to um, provide a link to that um, in the website. Right. So I'll let, I'll let Jared fill in the rest because I um, really turned over the varieties of contemplative experience project to him. He was 
really the lead researcher and the lead author on that project. Yeah, Jared, please jump in. So I'm visiting assistant professor in the Department of Religious Studies here at Brown also, and affiliated with the Contemplative Studies Initiative. And my so my disciplinary background and training is in religious studies. I was primarily Buddhist studies and comparative religion and the cognitive science of religion. So I guess I've always been just a little maybe baffled by some of the popular, more scientific and psychological approaches to meditation that see it as, um, you know, a, a way primarily for, you know, um, facilitating well-being, alleviating mental, physical, emotional health problems, for instance, um, when, you know, it was a very different perspective than, I guess, what I was familiar with, having studied a wide range of Buddhist meditation traditions and their ally, you know, philosophies and rituals and so forth. Um, So, you know, that broader background coupled with my training in cognitive science of religion, you know, has led to me collaborating with a lot of scientists and researchers since I finished my PhD in 2010. And, um, you know, working with Willoughby has certainly been the the primary way in which that's that's unfolded. So as she mentioned, mm-hmm. I've been involved in the Varieties Project, um, not since the very beginning, but from pretty early on, and have been involved with every dimension in the, of the project from subject recruitment to interviewing to transcribing, um, doing the qualitative data analysis, um, constructing the follow-up surveys, and ultimately also doing a lot of the analyses and being lead author on the first well, five or six, however many papers we've published at this point. Yeah. And, you know, it's certainly been also a, a big team effort. Um, many, many, many people have worked on this project. Um, yeah. RAs yeah. in our lab, uh, postdocs, we've got collaborators now at other institutions who are working on certain segments of the data set uh, because it is such a, a vast and huge data set. We ultimately yeah. interviewed more than 100 people for this um, study. And there's, I think, still a lot to learn from it. I mean, it's the most comprehensive qualitative study around meditation-related difficulties, I think, that's ever been published. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's true. Um, And like Jared said, we're just getting started. There's over 3,000 pages of uh, transcripts that we really have not even scratched the surface of. Yeah. I mean, when Jared, when you were just saying that, I thought, gosh, the hundreds upon hundreds of hours that you've both and then the whole team has spent really trying to understand the data. I'm really humbled by that. And hearing, you know, when I hear you both talk, I've heard, I have a sense of both of your histories and your research focus. But when I hear you both talk right now and introduce yourselves, I'm reminded of what feels like a very complimentary relationship between you both academically where Jared, like you're saying, I've had the experience when we've been in you know, conferences or presentations when Willoughby, you're presenting on challenging or adverse effects that Jared, you're often bringing in, as you said, from a religious scholar background to have just a really wide view of the context of which we are speaking about adverse, um, difficult conditions that people face in practice. So I'm just reminded of that. So I want to talk to you both about the VCE, especially for people that don't know the study and implications and what what we've learned from it so far. Um, And then Willoughby, you you talked about um, having studied mindfulness programs and interventions for a while, that pivot point for you when you started to get curious about potential adverse experiences that people had or uh, ways that the practice itself wasn't always just more is not always better. Um, coming to mindfulness. So was there any particular moments for you that stand out about what had you get curious about um, that question and that being a whole line of inquiry that you've been studying for quite a while now? Yeah. So if you want to know sort of the backstory of how I got interested in this research, you have to go all the way back to probably 2005, 2004, 2005, which was my really the first study that I ever conducted myself on Uh, meditation-related interventions, and that was my dissertation study. And so the idea behind the study was to to assess how um, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy affected sleep. And I was going to be the first person to actually measure sleep in a lab with brainwaves, um, objectively. And so I, I did a 
three rounds of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, and I stayed up for 200 nights recording people's brainwaves as they slept. And I was so excited to show the world that, you know, mindfulness could be used to treat insomnia and improve depression and, um, you know, really improve sleep. And that's not at all what the data said. The data actually were very clear and showing across multiple levels multiple indices of cortical arousal that the more you meditate, the more aroused your your brain gets. And people were not sleeping better after meditation. They were sleeping worse. Um, mm-hmm. They had more cortical arousals. They had more um, faster brain waves and, and less slow wave sleep. So any way you sliced it, the data were clear. And so I basically just hit, sat on the data and didn't do anything with it because I was just felt like it was the wrong answer or, um, you know, it was counter counterintuitive. It wasn't really particularly good for the brand. And then a couple, a little bit later while I was still sitting on these data, which I did for a couple of years, I was at a meditation retreat and I started telling people about the study and what I found. And the teacher said, well, yeah, of course, like everyone knows that meditation, if you do it enough, makes you stop sleeping. Right. And I was really, you know, and she kind of shamed me too and said, well, I don't know why you psychologists are trying to make meditation into a relaxation technique. And Hmm. I felt a little ashamed, but also really curious about, well, what else do, you know, meditation teachers know that, that we're, we're not asking them and, and um, what other assumptions are we making just based on this whole, like kind of new idea that meditation is good for you know, health benefits when that's not really what it was designed for. And so, um, so I did publish the data they're out. Um, and, um, there was another thing that happened that kind of compounded that, which was when I came to Brown to do my clinical, uh, residency, I was working at an inpatient psychiatric hospital. And during that one year, there were two yogis that came off retreat, uh, psychotic and were admitted to the hospital. Mm -hmm. And two in one year really seemed like a lot. Um, And so I went back to that same teacher and I asked, well, have you ever seen this before? And it was clear that the teachers had seen, you know, meditation induced psychosis before. And so that really got me thinking, okay, we need to just stop what we're doing right now with, you know, promoting mindfulness as a clinical intervention and start, just start at the beginning, start and asking teachers, like, what have you seen? Um, you know, how do we make sense of it and what do you do about it? And so that, that was really the beginning of the varieties project. Yeah, that's huge. This is my experience when I, when I hear you both presenting on the varieties of contemplative experience, which I'll shorten here to, to VCE. When I hear you presenting on the VCE project, to me, it does feel like giving voice to people whose voices might've been discounted or, or, um, may not have been heard. In the moment, and that it's not being done, Willoughby, as you just said, with uh, you know just a huge dismissive swipe of of the benefits of practice, but is actually saying, "Hey, can we complexify how we are conceptualizing practice and think about the benefits?" And it would be very useful for people in positions of authority, teachers, um, or a department, for example, or a program, to know some of these adverse effects. So. Could you, could you, for people that have not read the study or don't know it, could either of you start to kind of flesh it out a little bit about what are some of the stories that you've been hearing? Again, knowing that these might be outliers um, in terms of a larger population, but also really important to know, especially given what you said about people's experiences sometimes being discounted. So the VCE study is you know, comprised of interviews with 60 meditation practitioners across Theravada, Zen, and Tibetan lineages of um, mostly American Buddhist practitioners. Uh, mm-hmm. We tried to have a pretty equal gender balance in that sample. Uh, we also interviewed more than 30 teachers across those lineages as well. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to note that you know our sample um, is you know, largely comprised of white convert Buddhists. But even a lot of the practitioners or people who gave practitioner interviews who talked about their own challenging experiences, um, you know, many of them were themselves meditation teachers uh, in well-recognized mm. lineages. Many of them had what would be considered expert-level amounts of meditation background. And, you know, not all of them, you know, also had 
challenges at like a particular, you know, predictable time. Some of them had challenges, you know, pretty much as soon as they started practicing. Um, mm-hmm. and that maybe hit some sort of, you know, peak at some point and others had, um, uh, pretty normal, whatever that means, practice history for, uh, 15, 20 years. And then, um, after that point hit uh, a, a particularly difficult spot and had an onset of some challenges. Mm-hmm. So we got a, you know, a wide range of people, you know, again, some, some people were basically still had challenges ongoing during time of interview and others had, you know, worked with them many years ago. And I think each of those, each of those factors, like what tradition they were in, what their gender was, whether they were a teacher or not, how much background they had, whether they were on retreat or not, and and how long uh, ago their difficulties, um, you know, set in, you know, all of that made for very different kinds of interviews across the data right. set. So we really have, right. you know, 60 individual stories of individual lives that have been impacted by meditation, you know, in many time, many cases, ways that were also positive, which they also described in the interview, but at least had some degree of challenge involved with it. And yeah. typically that also w- led to distress and more often than not some kind of functional impairment as well. And so, you know, there, it's, it's hard to summarize, you know, it, all those 60 interviews, but we did the best we could in the research sure. study by qualitatively analyzing the range of experiences that they reported, um, which cut across you know, seven different domains of human experience. There were all kinds of cognitive challenges, perceptual challenges, uh, affective or emotional challenges, uh, somatic or physiological challenges, uh, challenges in motivation, um, changes in their sense of self that were difficult, and also mm-hmm. social uh, dimensions were were impacted. If you look at the symptoms, which are listed on the Cheetah House website and also in our codebook, from a trauma lens, I think that people who have a trauma lens will recognize a lot of the symptoms. So mm-hmm. you could separate out uh, the symptoms largely into symptoms of hyperarousal and, and dissociation. So on the, on the hyperarousal side, you see things like, you know, racing thoughts, intrusive thoughts, flashbacks, insomnia, um, agitation, anxiety, panic, uh, uh, anger, emotional, like mobility and reactivity, involuntary movements, um, all things like that. And then we also see the opposite where people lose all emotions, their minds go blank. Um, they, they become paralyzed. They, they basically become dissociated. They they don't have a sense of self anymore. They have no boundaries. Like, so, you know, we, you could see, you could view our, our code book largely in, in trauma terms, which is, which is a very interesting and I think fruitful, way to look at it because trauma therapy seems to be rehabilitating these people where a lot of the other frameworks that are applied are not. Right. Could either of you describe some of the different factors that the study determined were in play when it came to people having these adverse experiences in meditation? Because I think this is one of the really important contributions of this study is is surfacing these contextual factors. So it was also important for us to understand, you know, in addition to what are the challenges? We want to also understand, well, what are the the causes and circumstances that lead to people having challenges, experiences? Like why did some people seem to have them? And why do some people maybe have certain ones? And also, of course, what did they do about them? And those two things, like what kind of causes a challenge and what do people do about it? um, You know, a lot of those were kind of some, you know, in some cases were similar answers. So we ended up pooling those things together into what we called influencing factors, uh, many mm-hmm. of which, as I said, could could be either a risk factor for a meditation difficulty or it could be a remedy. So, for example, the amount of practice that one's doing or the practice type that one is doing, you know, could can, is a often a contributing factor to the type of difficulties that arise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some sort of change in type of practice or practice approach or practice amount can also serve as a remedy for some of the difficulties that arise. Mm-hmm. Uh, another good example of something that was both risk factor and remedy were teacher and community relationships. Um, you know, sometimes those could really um, exacerbate 
uh, difficulties when they were there. But when teachers and communities were particularly supported, um, you know, people rated those very highly as remedies as well. Mm-hmm. Um, other things, you know, really were only risk factors. Um, so things like um, you know, individual variables like prior psychiatric and trauma history, which a certain percentage of the sample had, but by no means all of them. Mm-hmm. And then other things really only make sense as, as remedies, things like um, seeking psychotherapy or taking medications, for instance. But yeah. the vast majority of things that we considered influencing factors could really um, kind of cut both ways in the risk factors and, and remedies. Yeah. So those were the, the kind of main analyses that we did for um, the, the first uh, publication in, in 2017, was to really try to, again, answer what are the range of challenges that are out there associated with meditation practice that people have and can describe? And then what do they think causes them? Uh, what were some factors that contributed to their onset or the perpetuation of those challenges? And then what do they do about them? What did they find helpful or unhelpful for working with the challenges to either alleviate them or mitigate them or at least just um, make their way through them one way or another? That's great. And just to be clear, this was, it was a targeted qualitative study. Is that correct? Where these are people that had, they volunteered or they said, yes, I've had an adverse experience and I, I want to go deeper and talking about it in an interview. Is that right? Uh, yeah. So inclusion criteria was that you needed to be able to report a, a challenging experience, uh, which we, uh, which is different than an adverse one, because hmm. I think there are, especially in the context of Buddhist meditation, there are some challenges that are thought to be normative or expected, maybe even desirable to a certain extent. And so um, to label those as adverse wouldn't necessarily make sense in that context. However, Mm, I think it's important that when we think about how our research is intersecting with other things like clinical interventions, where you do have particular goals and objectives, maybe even measurable goals and objectives in terms of the outcomes you're hoping meditation can have, I think in some of those contexts, it makes a lot more sense to think about a wider range of things as potentially adverse. But of course, too, um, there were certain cases in Buddhist meditation retreat culture, for instance, where there are certain types of challenges that would be considered, you know, virtually unanimously as, um, you know, something that was undesirable and that required intervention and some sort of, um, you know, additional support or care. And so I think yeah. even within a religious context, there is a line that is drawn somewhere where certain experiences would, like, for instance, psychosis or psychotic-like experiences, would be uh, considered adverse. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I think where communities draw that line and what types of experiences would be normalized or maybe even normative, that actually gets into some very interesting cultural uh, distinctions, uh, both when comparing Buddhist meditation to, say, clinical um, approaches, but also even across Buddhist traditions. There's not necessarily yeah, right. unanimous agreement on how these different experiences are to be interpreted. Well, this, and I'm glad you caught me on that around my default to adverse experiences where it's really talking about varieties. And this is where, this is the terrain where I think things can get very interesting you know, talking about trauma, for example, how to distinguish the difference between um, a state that through a lens of trauma might be considered highly dissociative and through a different contemplative lens might be considered more uh, an experience of intense concentration of of a feeling of not being connected to the body, but it's actually maybe assessed as in a very positive way. So, this does seem like really interesting territory. And I'm wondering if either of you want to talk about, you know, I get this question often about how do we know how to appraise experiences? How does that relate to culture? And then what would trauma say that might be different from, for example, um, a, a particular Buddhist tradition? And this does seem to be where things get complicated and are worth unpacking. But do any of you want to say anything about this issue of appraisal and, and how you work with it inside your research? I mean, I think there's there's a lot of different ways in which appraisals factor into the study. So, you know, on the one hand, there's all the conceptions within different Buddhist lineages of the range of experiences that are associated with meditation, which ones are considered part of the path, which ones are maybe indications of progress, which ones are known 
side effects, say, or just, you know, kind of anomalous experiences that can happen, but they're not really that important. And maybe they're even something that you just have to just kind of not be attached to and, and practice through. So within and across Buddhist traditions, there's a already a pretty um, kind of robust vocabulary for making sense of a lot of the experiences that came up uh, in the course of our of our interviews. Now, you know, meditation practitioners and teachers might have you know varying degrees of familiarity with that literature with those frameworks, but you know there were a number of frameworks that were invoked from within the traditions context often to make sense of certain experiences. So, for instance, you know, in Theravada traditions, sometimes uh, certain difficult stages were appraised as being part of the progress through the insight knowledges. Or in Zen, uh, there's a term um, called makyo, which refers to largely a class of perceptual distortions that are, you know, thought to be common um, things that can happen in the context of um, of zazen. And again. Mm-hmm. There's a similar kind of category of experiences in Tibetan Buddhism that are associated primarily with concentration practice. Um, so these kinds of things w- would show up in the interviews. But there's also, as I mentioned, you know, there's also some line typically that's drawn where, okay, at le- if that's even if that is maybe a, a desirable or at least a, a normal experience with meditation, mm-hmm. uh, there, there are other criteria that um, practitioners and teachers alike used for thinking about, well, when might this need some additional support right. um, or some other kind of intervention? So we recently yeah. reanalyzed our whole data set and wrote a paper on this that's called Progress or Pathology. It's another open access paper that's in Frontiers in Psychology. Uh, it came out in 2020. And there we talk about 11 different criteria that um, practitioners and teachers used to that impacted appraisals or determined need for intervention. So I'll just talk about those just very briefly. So there were six that were basically like immediate kind of criteria that, that could be invoked. So mm-hmm. those were um, the first one we called phenomenological qualities, which basically means like, well, what kind of experience is it? Is it a visual hallucination? Is it a loss of sense of agency? Is it uh, an experience of involuntary movements? Is it pain? Um, sometimes those things, again, would be checked against different notions within the tradition. Mm-hmm. Or if, you know, particularly severe things or un- typically undesirable things like suicidality, those would be maybe more universally thought of as red flags, though, Mm -hmm. you know, there were very few things that were universally thought of as anything uh, across the study. Another consideration that you could assess basically pretty quickly is, well, how long has this been ongoing? Uh, Is this a short-lived transient experience or has it been going on for a couple weeks and months now? Um, Relatedly, was, was, is there any sense of control over the experience? Uh, Is the experience distressing to somebody? And if so, how distressing? Is it impairing their functioning? And if so, how badly? And do they have a critical attitude, meaning or insight into the process? Name, meaning that, um, you know, do they understand that their experience is a departure from normal? And do they still have a sense of what consensual reality is? That, that mainly applied to things like hallucinations and delusions um, and similar phenomena. Then there were two criteria that really could only be evaluated if you over a kind of a longer time course. Um, or took a longer time course into consideration. One was the practitioner's prior health history, primarily like their psychiatric or trauma history. And that one was is a little tricky in that, you know, I don't think that have psychiatric and trauma history and religious experiences are necessarily mutually exclusive. So the way that one tended to play out was it was often offered as an explanation for when things like aren't particularly going well. The one that typically teachers made um, almost by way of assumption in some cases that, well, they must have had a prior health history or condition, and that's going to determine whether this is a religious experience or a concerning indication of something potentially psychopathological. Um, another con- criteria that could really only be evaluated across time we call impact, which is effectively, well, does it does the experience lead to some sort of positive outcome or growth, or does it lead to some future deterioration? That also isn't maybe particularly useful for real-time decision-making when you need to decide whether to intervene in someone's experience, but it was a criterion that was often invoked to say, well, look, that must have been a 
a normal, you know, meditation effect because ultimately they turned out fine or they learned or they grew from it. But I think there are some problems there with that potentially being, um, again, a, a way for traditions to sort of, um, you know, effectively say, well, the things that turned out well, those are normal, normative meditation experiences or religious experiences, but those that didn't turn out well, well, again, those are indications of some sort of psychopathology. So that's, I think both of these diachronic kind of criteria are a little problematic. And then there were a couple of contextual features, like some teachers believed that anything that happened in the context of meditation retreat should be treated as like a meditation experience and should not be seen as potentially psychopathological or needing intervention. It's just something that was a natural part of the process of meditation. But by and large, very few people endorsed that idea. Mm -hmm. Um, Another set of concerns involved basically just like, well, what are the resources and skills that the teachers have? Um, are they also trained clinicians? Do they have a trained clinician in their retreat center that they can refer the, the, the person in distress to? Um, do they have other resources? Do they have the time to work with the, somebody who is struggling a lot? Or do the, does that person need to get some sort of additional care before coming back into a retreat contest or an intensive practice situation? And then the mm-hmm. last one is simply, you know, uh, I think I've kind of already discussed it, but the last criterion we called uh, cultural compatibility, which is effectively re- way, recognizing ways in which um, both practitioners and teachers, um, you know, needed to evaluate experiences relative to the views, values, needs, and goals of um, of that particular meditator. Is this what they are wanting or expecting meditation to provide? And then also, you know, what are the what are the traditional constraints on that in that particular lineage? What do they expect is going to happen through the course of, of meditation? And I think negotiating those two things, kind of bringing both the practitioner's perspective uh, into the conversation and their needs and goals, while also recognizing that often in, in more religious contexts in which meditation is taught, that a lot of the views, values, goals, and notions of where meditation is going and what it will lead to are often kind of pre-established. That's great. Yeah. Do, Willoughby, do you want to jump in here? I was going to add to the second question that you asked, which was, how do we appraise meditation-related experiences with a cultural psychology lens, and how is that different maybe than a trauma lens? Is that mm-hmm. kind of what sure, you're asking? Yeah. Yeah. So I think to just recap some of the, the points that Jared made was, you know, these these experiences can be appraised differently depending on what context we're in, and that it's not always clear what context we're in. And so, you know, from in a trauma perspective, and now I'm speaking to clinicians or maybe meditation teachers who are working with someone who has an issue come up, the definition of a trauma-informed approach is a person-centered approach. So that we're really thinking about what are this person's needs? What are this person's values? What are their perspectives? What are the meditator's perspectives and values and goals? And really being aware of power dynamics and issues around power and authority, which you you, you talk about in the, in the first, you know, harm training. And so I think there's a there's an additional set of questions to ask on top of the the cultural psychology questions. Um, one of them is, you know, who is doing the appraising? Mm-hmm. Is it the, the the authority figure, or is it the meditator? Mm-hmm. And to be really, you know, clear that from a trauma informed approach, that appraisal largely needs to be driven by the meditator. Um, and in many um, meditation-related contexts, it's not. It's 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 very much driven by um, the authority figure or um, the tradition or uh, the teacher. Right. I think that there can often be uh, a lot of pressure on the meditator to uh, appraise the experience in a way that's going to deflect responsibility um, from the tradition, from the practice, or the teacher from any claims of harm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, we really, it helps to review the trauma literature around disclosure and response. So we know that when someone has a traumatic experience, for example, sexual assault, um, that their response to disclosure, how people respond when they disclose their experience 
is is much more determinative of the trajectory of their healing than the event itself. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, as clinicians and meditation teachers, we have to be really aware of how we respond. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of the default responses are ones that re-traumatize or that prolong the trauma response. And so those those tend to be things like, you know, denial, minimization, deflection, using value statements and that are really more like dismissals, like using terms like rare, um, right. where like yeah. that doesn't actually describe a frequency. That's more of a like, well, this doesn't really matter, you know, dismissing by, by like what Jared said, saying things like, oh, this will, this is really going to benefit you in the long run. Um, the, you know, there's a term called bright siding where you kind I of, just, heard that. you know, you bright siding is when you just kind of focus on the, the bright side of things and you're not really hearing how much distress the person is trying to report to you. Yeah. There's other, there's other versions of that that are kind of spiritualized, which have been termed Dharma splaining another, another great term out there. Um, you know, which is like, oh, this is just the purification of your karma and it's necessary for growth. Again, you're not hearing the, the distress that the person's trying to communicate you. And those are really forms of narrative appropriation, which is really a form of silencing. If you're not, if you're telling the person who's trying to report harm that really what they're reporting is a benefit you know, that's flipping their perspective 180. I mean, that that's basically gaslighting. Mm. And I think it also, you know, often reflects a some ignorance around this idea that, you know, this we call it the no pain, no gain fallacy. The idea that, you know, worsening is to be expected and is a positive sign that therapy is working. Um, but the data don't really support the the no pain, no gain idea, like less than mm-hmm. 10% of all like you know, psychotherapy deteriorations result in positive treatment responses. Mm-hmm. And actually positive treatment responses are better predicted by early gains. Mm-hmm. And that if we monitor how people are doing and when we address the t- deteriorations and don't just let them go on forever and say that it's going to be beneficial, but rather intervene, mm-hmm. that tends to lead to a much better outcome. So I think that knowing having all that information having some like knowledge of of you know what does and does not benefit trauma survivors shows a really different picture um perhaps than well it's part of my tradition and therefore you have to keep meditating and sit with this until it purifies like it it suggests that there's a diff you know that could be very harmful for some yeah could you you know it makes me think of um a, a common question that I'll often get around trauma-sensitive practice is this tension between, it's exactly what you said about the the no pain, no gain fallacy, but sometimes people can mishear work around trauma as saying, well, we have to make sure that everyone's comfortable all the time and that it's somehow not making room for challenging experiences. And one of the things that I felt will be at least, I think both of you, but will be, I've heard you stand for inside of presentations would be finding some kind of complexity, nuance, and middle ground um, inside of an orientation to practice. And so I'm wondering about what you've both seen in terms of the changing landscape over the last, what has it been now, four years since the first VCE paper came out? Yeah, I'm curious what you've seen in terms of the field, in terms of the questions that you get, how people understand or misunderstand some of the VCE findings. Has the field been changing at all, or what are you noticing um, in terms of anything from media coverage to conversations that you have? I'm wondering if and how you see the the field evolving since you've started to put th- this paper and the findings out. Yeah, I'll say a few things about that at first. Um, I do think there's been more research on this topic, which is good. You know, our study has its limitations. Although it's you know really rich in its qualitative data, and you know I think pretty thorough in documenting the range of challenges that happen and a number of the variables associated with them, you know because a hundred percent of our sample had challenges, we don't really have any you know for instance useful frequency information based upon right, our right. study. So there are study design things that again we have strengths and we also have questions and 
facts that we can answer with this. But there yeah. have been a couple of larger scale survey-based studies that have tried to get at frequency of meditation-related challenges. And depending upon what type of severity we're talking about there, it seems like those survey data are, are coming in at around you know 25% of people have some sort of challenge. And a smaller number of maybe you know three to five to seven percent have something pretty serious associated with their practice. So those kinds of research questions are, are really valuable, and that kind of information of that you know collected through broader surveys um, of general population of meditators was something that you know we hadn't done, but now right. is starting to be done. And there's yeah. also been a couple of you know, meta-analyses of adverse effects in, um, you know, clinical research. And I mean, realistically, a lot of what those have said is that, well, there's not really adequate uh, monitoring. We really don't have the information we need uh, to really give a, a very accurate picture of adverse effects in clinical contexts of meditation-based programs. Mm-hmm. But at least people are starting to aggregate the different literature in different ways and um, there are, yeah, there are numerous reviews of the broader literature uh, that are out there now. And, you know, pretty regularly we get contacted by people doing, um, you know, master's or thesis or dissertation or picking up some sort of research project that's been inspired by our work. Um, you know, not to mention that we do have some colleagues in, um, in Europe that have done also kind of a full-scale replication study um, of our, our interview protocol in um, you know, samples of European meditators of different traditions. So mm-hmm. there will be more also qualitative uh, results coming out from other teams that we've been collaborating with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just to just sort of say that in a different way, I think when we started this project or that it was pretty much the default thing to say that meditation was safe it had no side effects and you know sh- should be used instead of medication or drugs because it had you know it was 100% safe so th- that was right. kind of wh- where we started and i don't think anyone's saying that anymore i mean i think or people who say that get kind of laughed at um and you know that we don't really know the numbers and like jared said there have been a number of different estimates, depending on how you define an adverse effect, but none of the studies have said zero. So I think that we've at least moved slightly more in that direction. We're like, okay, we're not sure how big the problem is, but, but it's not, it's not non-existent. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think, you know, in terms of the sort of the larger impact, I think one of the most promising or encouraging parts of the research is that the meditators who are having trouble um, are learning about the research and learning that they're not alone and that they are not at fault and that this this happens, you know, even to meditation teachers who are practicing correctly and don't have a psychotrauma history. This can happen under optimal conditions. And they also learn that there is help. Yeah. And this is maybe a segue to Cheetah House. So Yeah, that'd be great. If you could share on that, that'd be great. Yeah. So I created a, a nonprofit called Cheetah House. Cheetah, like the animal, house, like a house, Cheetah House, all one word, two H's, dot org. <laughs> um, Jared's laughing. Um, maybe my tagline isn't quite up to up to brand yet, but uh, <laughs> yeah, we have, uh, we had almost 20,000 unique visitors since January 1st of this year. So year to date, almost 20,000 unique visitors. So that gives you a sense that uh, it's not just a few people who are having meditation-related problems. Um, We have uh, lots of, you know, all all the research obviously is available, and we've tried to break it down into less dense and technical articles into, you know, much more user-friendly videos and podcasts like this one. Um, we also have a support group. We have a couple of different kinds of support groups. We have referrals to trauma therapists um, who know about meditation-related problems. Um, meditators also post their stories on, um, on the Cheetah House website, which is another step in their healing to be able to disclose, you know, anonymously what happened to them and, and be able to tell their story, which often, like I said, doesn't get told. 
It's an amazing resource. Uh, every time I go and visit, I'm blown away by, there's always a new page. I feel like when I visit and whenever I send people that way, they often talk about the multiplicity of resources, both from crisis support, but also longer term support and then reading those stories. And I have a question. I have a question about that, Willoughby, and well, for both of you, but you said something about it not being good for the brand. And when I think of you both doing research that is exploring adverse effects, that it runs counter to a lot of momentum around mindfulness and meditation, more in the mainstream and ways that mindfulness is talked about. So I'm thinking about both kind of kind of counterculturally running against this idea that mindfulness and meditation will just naturally be helpful, that that would be one thing that you're both doing. And also when you talked about interviewing teachers, that you might be kicking over some stones or having some stories come up that would be, you know, maybe challenging to hold or things that were um, secrets inside of communities. So I'm wondering how it's been for you both to be in the roles that you are. I can't imagine this is always the easiest role to be a contrarian or someone who's saying, hey, wait a minute, let's let's slow down and look at some of the adverse effects. Like, how has it been for you both to be in the roles that you are? I mean, I think it's been in, you know, a long process. Um, it wasn't mm-hmm. like there was a, a switch that was flipped overnight. I mean, we like, we've been talking to meditators uh, in distress and sometimes in crisis for m- more than a decade. And so that process of talking to people who have really been suffering and haven't received the help that they were looking for and an, and oftentimes were were blamed or shunned or really not treated well, that whole right. process of hearing really the same story or very similar stories over and over again really changed my, my starry-eyed idealism that I had at the beginning. Um, yeah. You know, and it's not, to, it's not to say that I'm anti-meditation or that, that I don't think people should practice, but I do think that, you know, I came into it with an idea that, you know, all meditators are the greatest, nicest people. And, you know, just kind of a, a little bit over, over, overdone, sure, overplayed. Sure, sure. And it's, it's a lot more nuanced than that. I think one of the things that I discovered during the VCE project was how power and authority are playing a role mm-hmm. and how they're playing in a role that is not beneficial to the meditator. And mm-hmm. that seeing that pattern over and over again and how the meditator's perspective is being discounted and dismissed and appropriated and blame, you know, the meditator gets blamed a lot of the time. It made me want to step up into a place of where I'm there. Nobody's speaking up for them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I, and, and it seemed like we were in a privileged position to be able to do that, do a little bit of good and, and bring at least their voices to the table. And yeah. into the conversation, which they really haven't been up until this point. Yeah. Well, will be, I think you also, um, I know this is private in some ways and confidential with your own clinical practice, but you do support meditators both one-to-one and in a group. Is that right? That's an, that's an ongoing piece of work for you, um, internationally. Yep. And the new thing that we are developing, uh, we've had a lot of strategic planning in this last year and, one of the things that we're developing is a peer mental health advocacy model um, where Cheetah House would be by and for meditators in distress. Because Mm. like I was saying, I've been talking a lot about power dynamics and Mm. often, you know, whatever kind of resources are available for um, meditators who are experiencing problems, they often go to a teacher and the teacher tells them what's wrong with them and what they should do about it. Right. (laughs) And it's just this top down thing that again is dis discounting their experience and like trauma victims need to be in charge of their healing. They need to have their perspectives honored. And so we try to hold space for them to be able to create their own narratives, create their own perspectives and not, not just, you know, hand it to them. And so we have been really trying to build a a much more bottom up rather than top down kind of model for the entire organization where meditators in distress actually have input into who helps them. And we also train up the meditators in distress themselves to be able to give uh, support, but in a, you know, in a safe way so that they know when to refer and when they're, they're out of their league. That's great. 
Well, this is a question for potentially both of you, but when you said, Willoughby, earlier about the fact that um, I think based in part at least on the VC project and there being more awareness about potentially challenging experiences in meditation, maybe related to trauma or something else, that in many ways there has been a, a shift in the field more generally. And I wonder if either of you feel in some ways like the task is, is complete or, I mean, clearly there's so much more that could be done with the data and will be done. Uh, and here you are, I think, three, four, five papers now published in and with more research to come. Is there a sense of that this part of the task is close to completion? And or where do you, where would you like to see the field continue going around an understanding of the variety kind of experiences or what you'd like to see more generally? Yeah, so you're you're right. The there is more to do. Um, it will never be complete, I don't think. In that we will feel like we have, um, you know, covered the richness of you know the data that we've already collected, which is you know pretty ex- extensive. I do think that you know we're trying to get out a a, a pretty robust research paper though on each of the main domains of phenomenology. So mm-hmm. I would say that's one goal we're still working on. Um, we've published a paper in Journal of Consciousness Studies last year on changes in sense of self mm-hmm. called I Have This Feeling of Not Really Being Here. Um, again, open access for your readers. We've previously did a paper on perceptual changes on meditation-induced light experiences, which kind of got at lights and simple hallucinations and hypersensitivities mm-hmm. and created a neurobiological model for why meditation might lead to those perceptual changes. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got a paper under review uh, about meditation-related fear states and how those are understood in textual traditions and, uh, again, trying to develop a model for why that would happen in the context of meditation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're about to submit a paper on um, kind of energy experiences and their associated phenomenology. So that would get us into the kind of somatic and physiological domain. And then I think, you know, we also want to put something out on the uh, cognitive changes as well, uh, which are numerous. And mm-hmm. we're also starting to slowly break into papers that focus on influencing factors as well. So we're working right now on a paper on um, uh, student-teacher relationships that talk about, again, the myriad ways in which that was both really supportive and really helpful for practitioners, um, and also ways in which it was, you know, oftentimes, uh, you know, contributed to secondary distress and prolonged um, problems or led to additional like challenges that played out in interpersonal domains. So Mm. I think there's more papers to be done on, on remedies as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I think we will continue to try to get out these discrete papers on the major dimensions of the study. And that's still going to take a little bit of time. Um, and then, I th- you know, I think the next goal beyond that with respect to the VCE data is to think about a book length presentation of this, where one of the things that we have trouble doing in academic articles that are often bookended by, you know, seven, nine, 10,000 word count limits is, you know, getting a lot of the qualitative data in there, the people's stories effectively. And mm-hmm. with longer chapters uh, devoted to particular themes, um, you know, we can really tell those stories in more extensive ways and I think create a you know richer picture for people of what what kind of the whole arc of somebody having difficulties having them be interpreted working with a teacher or a community working with remedies and resolving them and continuing to interpret them or make meaning out of them for often years to come you know that's something that I think is also a part of the picture that you know, we'll want to get out there in some form eventually. That's great. Yeah. And I think on my side, I mean, the VCE study, we've always been interested in how the VCA data can generalize into, you know, other samples. And so the VCE study was done in Buddhist samples, many of which were on retreat. 
Um, what about, you know, mindfulness-based programs? What about apps? What about everything else that's happening in the meditation world? Sure. And so we have um, one study that was do- is done and actually is fairly far along in the, in the submission process that was basically replicating the VCE codebook in a mindfulness-based intervention. So that hopefully will be coming out soon. Um, and, you know, I've really been interested in the remedy section because I get, you know, several calls a week from meditators in distress. And, you know, a lot of them come with a laundry list of things they've tried, different practices, different uh, treatments, and, you know, they're not finding help and support. And so we uh, have run the support group at Cheetah House for a couple years now, and I think are starting to get a sense of what is helpful. And we're actually going to start a treatment study, um, just making sure that the it's not just our impression, but rather it's actually that there's actually evidence there. And then there'll be something that I'll feel um, a little more confident in putting in the book that we know that this type of approach works. And, and not surprisingly, the approach is largely, um, you know, a somatic based trauma approach, um, with a couple modifications, uh, or, or additions for meditators specifically. Great. Did you, you both alluded to, um, the book, a forthcoming book. Do you, do you want to say anything about, um, how that's going or what you're, what you're hoping for it? <laughs> Well, I'm looking right now at a giant corkboard that goes from floor to ceiling and is covered with um, little cut-up file cards that are in different colors. And there's chapters, and um, some of those chapters are written, and some of them are not written. And I think once we finish this remedies um, treatment study, and we really know that we have something to offer. Um, a long time ago, when we started, when we did the VCE study, we did some focus groups. And we wanted to, we asked people, you know, what is going to make these data more palatable to people? Because it's, it's very threatening, this, these data. Right. And the, this, what they told us was offer a solution along with the problem. So right. I don't want to publish the, the sort of textbook on these, you know, this meditation related challenges until we have something to offer in terms of solution. So that's uh, where that's going. But the, the problem part is probably has been largely written. I realize there's many different things that I could, or topics that I could ask you about. Uh, at this point, I'm wondering if there's anything that I haven't asked you about already that you would want to talk about, or that it feels interesting to you, um, especially with this audience around people that are interested in the relationship between mindfulness and trauma and just where you're at right now. One thing is just kind of you know, who we've seen come through the door in Cheetah House. And, you know, in this pandemic, I think a lot of people have a lot more time to meditate. Mm-hmm. For people who are already meditating are increasing their meditation. And and people who are just stressed because of the stress of the pandemic and losing your job and, you know, having illness around all that, people are starting to take up meditation. So we have seen a huge uptick in both types of people um, who are developing problems. Um, but you know, a lot, a lot of app users and considering how many millions of people use meditation apps. Um, I think that we need to expand our support system for meditators in distress. So this is a, this is a plea from Dr. Britton asking anyone out there who has any kind of trauma training and is interested in supporting meditators, um, to give me a call or send me an email, um, and think about being a helper at Cheetah House. We can send you uh, referrals of meditators in distress. We need help. Yeah, there's a number of, I, I love looking at the site because there is a number of practitioners who've made that commitment and are saying that they're open to being available. And so encourage people to check out the site and if that feels like a fit to get in touch with you. And I just want to underline, I, I, um, I have had my own concerns this year around the combination of the adversity and, and stress and pressure and trauma really of COVID and the anticipatory grief and isolation that so many people are, are feeling. And then of course, understandably turning to, you know, meditation apps or teachings being in practice um, with the best of intentions. And then the combination of those two together at some point can be challenging or difficult for people. And so having the, the resource of Cheetah House is, is really important. 
Well, let's, um, you know, I just want to take care of both of your time here. So why don't we hold this as maybe part one of, I know it will be an ongoing conversation. Um, but just thank you both for taking the time to come on and introduce your research to the audience here. And just as a reminder, um, as ways people could, um, find your work, we have cheetahhouse.org and then also that the, the VCE study is available, um, online and you've mentioned a couple of links any other things that you'd want people to know about how to get in touch with you or just uh, be in contact with your research if you go to the cheetah house website it will provide all the links you need great great well thank you both for taking the time and, and we'll look forward to talking to you again soon you're welcome thanks for having us that brings us to the end of this episode of the trauma sensitive mindfulness podcast Thanks for listening. Thanks also to Willoughby and Jared for having the conversation. If you'd like to learn more about trauma-sensitive mindfulness work, you can visit my website at davidtrelevin.com. We have a number of resources there, including a free webinar where you can go into more of the principles and details around this work. And I encourage you to check out Cheetah House at cheetahhouse.org. It's a great resource for any of us that are in this domain of trauma-sensitive mindfulness. So thanks again and talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.